0: Good. Um, Hope everybody's doing well. If we could have a little more light in the house, the way I can see people's faces. I like to see people's faces. Um, They taught you in school, actually, when you preach, you're supposed to, like, go like this. I've never been able to do that. Um, Just never been able to do that. I don't know why. I don't know why. Just never been able to do that. Um... This Easter, for our Easter egg hunt, we have come up with what I think is a great idea, but it's going to entail some people helping us out. And so, what we've decided to do is we've decided to make a tractor tour, okay? And the tractor tour is going to go through our field, our little 11 acre field. And the kids will stop at stations where they will look at things happening according to the Easter story. So, you know, you think through the Easter story and the first stop will be this, and then I'm not going to tell you what the stops are. First stop will be this, and then you'll go to this one, and you'll wind up with the cross, and you'll wind up with the resurrection. So our kids' Easter egg hunt, um, the vision for it went up a couple levels. And we're going to need some actors and we're going to need some people participating because I think it's really going to be effective. So preschoolers are going to go around on this Easter tractor tour. We could call it ETT, right? Easter tractor tour and then the K through fifth graders are going to go around on the Easter tractor tour and it's just going to be a lot of fun and very impactful for the kids. So next Sunday, we're going to have a little thing in the bulletin for you to uh, sign up. So be thinking about that. Um, Easter, Easter this year is on April 1st, and uh, the Easter egg hunt will be, of course, on March 31st on Saturday here at the church. So, so just keep that in mind, think through what you want to do, and then we'll sign up next week. All right, um, this week we're starting a new series. It's called, uh, What is Your Job Now? And it's actually in the book of Job, Job. So if you will, turn your Bible to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Now, this book starts with a meeting in heaven. Um, I am not sure how many times that God meets with his angels and meets with Satan throughout a given day or a given time period, I don't know. But what I do know is here in Job chapter 1, he's having a meeting with his angels and Satan or Lucifer, is able to come to that meeting. And they have a conversation about Job. And God basically asks Lucifer what he's been doing. And Lucifer says, I've been roaming here and there all over the earth. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? That's what he says. And Satan says, well, well yeah, I've considered him and you've got a hedge of protection around him, and I can't touch him. But if you take that hedge of protection down and let me at him for a little bit, I will show you that he will curse you to your face and totally abandon his faith in you. So that's the conversation. So God in heaven says, okay, you go ahead and do that, all right? So Satan goes down, and this is the first thing that he does. He has some of Job's servants killed, and all of Job's oxen and donkeys are taken. So he's lost part of his wealth. Here's the next thing that happens. Servants and sheep are burned to death. He loses some of his wealth. And then after that, the servants are killed, another set of servants are killed, and the camels are stolen. I think the guys were from Winston-Salem. They went in, they wiped him out, and they brought him back. Maybe not. Servants are killed. cameras are stolen. And then, right after that, Job receives the most devastating news of all. And here it is. Job's children are killed, all 10 of them. There were seven sons, three daughters, killed. In a matter of moments, probably a matter of between 20 and 30 minutes, Job loses everything and tragedy enters into his life. And it's because Satan and God had a conversation up in heaven, and Satan was allowed to go down and do this to Job. Now, How could God allow this to happen to good old faithful Job? How could he do that? How could God do this based on a wager? Now, you may have never thought of that question in this story. Every time I read it, that's a question that comes up in my mind. God is up in heaven He makes a wager with Satan. Satan goes down and wipes him out. And not only does he wipe him out, he takes people's lives. People die because of this thing that has happened in heaven. And at some level, if you're human, that becomes a little difficult to wrap your mind around. And you accept it, maybe, or maybe you don't accept it, but you're wondering what in the world is going on. So, a couple, couple, couple of things. I cannot unpack this whole thing today. This is a, a total Bible study, just write what I just gave you right there. And why does God do all this? But here's, here's I'm going to give you kind of a little answer, and then we're going to move on in the sermon, okay? Fair enough? So, first... I want to teach you some things about Satan. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Satan does not have full power. Satan can be limited by God's power. So Satan can only do what God allows him to do. That's all he can do. He can go no further than what God allows. However, you can't charge God in this case with doing something wrong. See, when we when we suffer sometimes, we, we have a temptation or a tendency, or maybe not at all, but a temptation or a tendency to charge God with doing something wrong. We have been faithful, we have done this, and I don't know why God isn't doing this for me. I don't know why God is allowing this to happen to me. So here in this, in this questioning of why God did this, and isn't this just not to point it to godly awful, right? You can't charge God with doing something wrong, and I'll tell you why. The moment you charge God with doing something wrong is the moment he is no longer God. You see, if you can charge God with doing something wrong, that means that there is a higher moral standard than God has laid down for humankind. Are you tracking with me? And that higher moral standard had to come from something else, a being that is higher than him. Because by definition, God created the world. By definition, he is the last cause. By definition, he makes the rules. By definition, everything right and wrong is measured according to him. So you can't charge God with doing something wrong because he is God. And the moment you do that, That morality becomes higher than God, and God is no longer God. He has been reduced to something enormously less. So if you use this passage of Scripture to prove that there isn't a God, you have another problem. Well, God isn't real because he allowed suffering to happen, and he doesn't do anything about it, and in fact, sometimes he just allows it. If you do that, you've got another problem, and that problem is the human race, right? Because now you've got a human race that can't help themselves but do stuff that is evil. Florida, right? Trying to fix that problem. We've been trying to fix that problem for 20 years. 20 years we've been trying to fix that problem to make kids safe at school. And we just can't do it. So without a God, you have no hope. You have nothing to hang your hat on. Humans become the gods of society and the ones with the answers and humans within the human race is not the answer for our troubles here on earth. Are you you following me? And so now you don't have a God. Now you just have the human race. And we all might as well just go live it up and do whatever we want to and just, because we're all gonna die and go back into the dust anyway. Inside our soul, however, there is something that is saying, no, 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 no. This is not all there is and God is real and he is really there, and I can't go to that method. So then you come to this question. What kind of death is a good death? You know, all 10 of his kids were killed at the same time, instantly. Um, the servants were killed instantly. Um, what, is it better to die slowly. Like like God is allowing things, is it, is it better to die slowly? And I would say it is not better to die slowly. <laughs> Come on. I know, this is, I know this is kind of different, right? But if we're going to be honest about the Bible, we're going to be honest about the Bible, right? It, is it better to die slowly? No. Okay? It's not, it's not better to die slowly. Um, So But if you die slowly and all these deaths, they relate back to sin. Well, if you relate all this stuff, this dying and all this bad stuff back to sin, you still still are going to arrive at the same question. For instance, why did God allow Adam and Eve to take fruit off the tree and bite it, right? And send us into this sinful thing. Why couldn't God have just limited their choice and just saved us all from this pain? Right? As soon as you ask that question, guess what you've done? You have asserted your morality over God's morality, and you've made him lesser than who he really is. Are you tracking with me? You... God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to allow the human race to have the freedom of choice. God could have created robots at any moment he wanted to. God could have programmed them to love him any moment he wanted to. But God, in his infinite wisdom, put the freedom of choice into an environment and allowed it to play out. God knows what he's doing. God has the right to decide how to act because he is God. He has the right to do that. If, if you think something else is... It, That God has the right to decide how to act because he is God. Now, let me me explain something to you that you may or may not have considered ever. God, on any given day, sees every single death that happens in a 24-hour period. I don't know about you, I struggle with one I struggle when I hear 17 kids in Florida get, lose their lives. I struggle with that. God in heaven sees them all. Now, let me put that into perspective for you. From 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock today, over 6,300 people will die of various means. They'll either be sick, they'll die of old age, they'll die in a car crash, they'll, they'll die somehow, some tr- uh, horrific way they will die, they will die. In a given day, that is over 152,000 people lose their life on a given day. God sees all of that. That stat is not the only reason he did this, but that stat alone in his infinite knowledge made him say, you know what? I'm going to do something for the human race that is eternal and perfect after they die. I'm gonna allow them to have a freedom of choice and I'm gonna provide them a way to leave pain behind once they die. I love the people I created so much and I gave them that freedom of choice so that they could love me back that I am going to send my son to die on the cross of Calvary, shed his blood and rise three days later so that they can have life eternal, a life without pain, so that this world isn't all that is. God in heaven, though he allows death to be in this world right now and he allows you and I to suffer number one, has a reason for that suffer, but probably suffering. But more importantly, he has provided a way for you to live in eternity without suffering. And it's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is confess your sins and accept him as your savior. And that is where you go. Come on. That is good stuff. Now, I just shared all of that with you but I want you to know, Job did not think of any of it. His tragedy happened, and the first thing he did was not blame God. The first thing he did was something else. So what is your job when tragedy happens in your life? What is your responsibility as a, per, as a person of faith? Look at verse 20. It says this. I printed a large print version today. Yeah, and I'm still doing this. See? God loved me. He'd correct my sight during this 30 minute period of time. I'm I'm joking. That was related to the. Okay. Stay on point. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. As soon as tragedy hits your life, whatever it may be, whether it's small or big, the first thing that you do is this. You come to grips with what has occurred. This has occurred. I'm going to own it. I'm in this situation now, and it's bad, but I'm going to own it. It's very painful, but there's nothing I can do about it. It's in my life. I'm going to come to grips with it. I'm going to accept it, and I'm going to move forward. And number two, you worship in the pain. You worship in the pain. Here in this passage of scripture, it says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head because he was devastated, and he fell on the ground And he worshiped. And this is what he said Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And notice, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with anything wrong. In other words, Job, in tears, feeling the pain of the loss of his servants and more importantly, his children, fell and worshiped God. What is your job when tragedy comes? It is to embrace it. It is to feel the feelings of remorse and it's to praise God for the pain. Praise him for the blessings, praise him for giving you stuff and praise him for taking stuff away. You fall down and you worship God. You worship him. That's what you do with tears. Rick Warren, a pastor in California, says this, the deepest level of worship is praising God in spite of pain, trusting him during a trial, surrendering while while suffering, and loving him when he seems distant. This is what I know Anytime that you go through suffering as a believer, God is with you whether you feel like he's there or not. God has his eye on you whether you feel like he's there or not. God is with you whether you feel like he's there or not. To embrace the pain and say, this is what God has for me for this time, and to fall on your knees and worship him is to submit the moment to him and say, I couldn't get through life in the good times without you, and I definitely can't get through the bad times without you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We worship God in our pain. And I would submit to you this evening, this evening, because this message was really long. I submit to you this morning this. When you worship in the pain, it is the best worship you will ever have. When you worship in the pain, it is the best worship you will ever have. You see, we've, we've in our society, um, a lot of Christians think that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't jump. I'm just saying jumping and praising and lifting hands is the best worship ever. That is not the best worship ever. The best worship ever is when you are grappling with your humanity and your frailness, and you fall down and worship the God who isn't frail and who is really strong, and you're really depending on him. There is something about your heart that connects to God like better than when you are happy it is an amazing moment, and he worshiped, and he worshiped. So, if all that wasn't enough, God and Satan had another meeting in heaven. You get kind of nervous when you see that, you know, God and Satan's having another meeting, and um, you're wondering what in the world is going to happen. So, this is what it says in Job chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them and presented himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hands. Okay. Okay. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And this makes me cringe every time I read it. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which he scraped himself while he sat in the ashes. I've seen a lot of stuff in the hospital. I am so glad I've never seen somebody scraping themselves with a piece of pottery. Come on. Oh, the agony of that. The agony of that. So what has just happened Oh, well, we're going to strike Job with his health. We are going to strike Job with his health. So, let me tell you something else about Satan. First, Satan has a philosophy about the human race that human love is conditional. In these two chapters of Scripture, passages of Scripture, Satan has said, look, Job loves you, Father, because you have blessed him and there's a hedge of protection around him and I can't touch him. He loves you because things are going well. I submit to you that the whole human race is self-centered. The whole human race is, is just, would just leave you if you started doing something bad to them. So here's what I'm saying Human love is conditional. If I can take something else from Job, you will see that he will curse you to your face because it's conditional. If you do stuff good for them, they'll like you. If you do stuff bad for them, they'll wonder about you, they'll think about you, and they'll curse you to your, to your face. That is, that is his philosophy. But Satan also has a goal, and this is his goal for you and for me. Satan's goal is to get you to curse God. In other words, when you have a trial, when you have, a, have something going on health-wise or somebody in your family or, or there's, there's bills and all this kind of stuff and you're just struggling with it and you're struggling with that moment, what Satan is trying to get you to do is curse God. He is trying to prove his point that all of humanity is self-centered and all of humanity will only worship God if things are going well and they will not worship God when things are going bad. His philosophy is to get you, his goal is to get you to curse God because if he gets you to curse God, Satan wins. Satan wins. If Satan gets you to doubt your faith, Satan wins. Satan wins. So he sent all of this into into, uh, existence for him and this is what happened in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? So there's a, there's a guy named Tim Hawkins that had um, this to say about Job's wife. I just got blessed with a good wife. I never got a good wife. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, think about Job in the Old Testament. I know (laughs) Trust me I know what I'm doing (laughs) Wow Yeah Listen ladies Your husband Depends on you For support He doesn't look like it sometimes He doesn't look like he cares sometimes Sometimes he has the same blank look because he's in his nothing space, right, that he has, that we all have, and he's just sitting there. It's not that he's not smart. He's just in his nothing space. He's just sitting there, and he doesn't look like sometimes that he really cares. He's not like your girlfriend that girlfriends that immediately show their, their emotions to you. He's, he's not like that, but what I know is that when your husband is going through a tough time, he needs your support. He depends on it. He doesn't want to tell you he depends on it necessarily. And if he does tell you, he's going to be very, very kind of careful with telling you that. But out of everybody else in the entire world, your opinion matters to him. And it doesn't matter if he's yelled at you. It doesn't matter if you are constantly fighting. It doesn't matter if you're having a great, great time in a great marriage. It doesn't matter. Your husband draws strength from your positive encouragement, and he also draws weakness from your negative encouragement. Stamina of a man in your home really has a lot to do with how you treat him. It's the way it is. We in our society give guys such a tough time And everywhere, guys, and I'll say me, we are bombarded with manhood issues. You can't be a man. you got to be this way. Because everybody seems to want us to be something that we're not. Your husband needs to go home, and he needs to know that in your eyes, he is okay. He needs to go home today and know that in your eyes, that you respect him, and that you are with him, and that you want to help him through whatever he's going through. He needs that from you. Here in this passage of Scripture, this lady who is hurting because of the loss that she had, because I don't know if we've put this together yet, but she's lost 10 kids too. And what has happened is she has lost that. And I'm not saying that she is possessed by Satan, but she has just took a step to further Satan's goal. She has just told her husband to curse God and die. And what does Satan want Job to do? He wants him to curse God because that's the bet. And here's the number one support for Job in his life, and she is telling him to do the exact same thing. We need to make sure husbands and wives, this is a principle regardless, that we are not enabling Satan to win over our spouse. That the things that we say to our spouses are things that enable them to hold on to God and hold on to faith in God so that they win in that arena. Amen? Amen? That is what we need to do. So when you're suffering, what do you do? Well, if you're the spouse, you support them through that suffering. We owe it to our spouses to make sure everything we say to each other serves to further God's plan and not Satan's. So how does Job respond? He actually responds brilliantly look at this. He says this, but he said to her, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Now, before you jump on Job, I want you to notice how that's phrased. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. He's not calling her a foolish woman. He is saying, I know you better than this. You trust God better than this. I have been married to you. You have brought 10 kids into the world. We have raised them together. They are gone now. I feel your pain. But right now, you have stepped out a little bit and you are speaking as a foolish woman speaks and you are not a foolish woman. You're not a foolish woman. So with grace, he tells her, look, you're not speaking correctly. Come back, come back, come back. This isn't you. And then he says this. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So he tells her, he says, look, God has for some reason allowed us to be in this position and we are going to stick to our faith in God. And she does not speak for the rest of the book. Why? Because she's right in there with him. And we're going to get into this a little bit later in a couple. She's right in there with him, and she's supporting him. And she is walking now with him through this tragedy. The thing that Satan wants us all to do is curse God, and he's definitely trying to get our support systems to come out from up under us. That is what he is trying to do. So, yeah. So here's a question. Actually, I have a heart-wrenching question for you, okay? First. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Does the way that you are living your right life right now Would God look at that life and say, have you considered my servant Jamie? Have you considered my servant Ben? Have you considered my servant Roger? Have you considered my servant Richard? Have you considered my servant Angie? Have you considered my servant? We could go down the list. It's the way you're living your life. Would it cause God to say, hey, look down here, this person is actually righteous and true? Okay, so let me, let me just step away from that a minute, let me say, I kind of want that for God to, but I kind of don't, you know what I mean? <laughs> I kind of want God to say, hey, he's, he's really living correctly, have you considered Philip? But then I'm like, maybe not, maybe not, you know, it's kind of a, because I don't want this to happen, but I want this to happen is kind of a mixture, Right? And then on the other side is the, uh, another question that is, would Satan say, hey, let me at him, and I'll show you, right? Do you want to live your life in such a way that Satan will look, oh, he's too holy, I'm coming after him. Can I come after him? Father, can I come after Ben? Can I come after him? Can I come after Roger in the back? No, can I come after Can I come after Chad? Can I come after him? Okay, yeah, I want to live that way, but no, I don't want that to happen. Okay, part to decide. I... The encouragement here is for you to live correctly. Here's really the gut-wrenching question, okay? It goes something like this. Am I giving glory to God or victory to Satan in my life? That's the gut-wrenching question. When trials come on, am I keeping my faith in God, thus giving him victory in my life, or am I giving victory to Satan? We might put it this way. Am I proving Satan to be right or God? Or we might put it this way. Am I shallow enough to believe in God during the good times and curse him during the bad? Am I shallow enough to take all the good things and say, yeah, I deserve those things, but I don't deserve the bad suffering in my life? I don't deserve the, the health stuff. I don't deserve the problems I'm going through. I don't deserve that. So I'm a little iffy on the faith in this matter, and I really like it when people, when God gives me stuff on this side that's good. That is called a spoiled brat Christian. That is what that's called, spoiled brat. You see them in Walmart all the time, not Christians, but Kids. And we complain about them because they're just spoiled brat. You might have some in your family. Don't be a spoiled brat Christian. The tough question is, am I living a shallow faith to where I just believe in God when things are going well? Or do I have a deep faith that I can say, just like Job, if there's good things, if there's bad things happening in my life, I am still going to praise the Lord. I'm gonna praise Him in the good times and I'm gonna praise Him when things aren't good. And I'm gonna in my tears, tell God about it and lift him up in praise because he is God and I know he knows what he is doing. How are you responding to your tragedy? Um, I, have a, I have a friend of mine I went to school with. Um, we graduated the the same year, her husband graduated two years after I graduated. And about two years ago, two, could be three, times a blur to me sometimes, but um, their, their son was killed in a car accident. And he was maybe 19 years old, killed in a car accident. And a couple of days after that, um, she, the mom, posted this on Facebook. Living on a farm, I get to hear the cries and moans of creation every day. Our rooster starts bellowing before the sun rises. He seems to pull the sound from deep below his chest and unleashes his rant throughout the day. The crows come calling occasionally and shall their arrival, seeming to warn pending trouble. Goats down the street, Beat and blare like wounded children. The hawk circles in flight and screeches and screams with the highest of pitches. The crickets at night sing a somber song, and they bid the sun farewell. The frogs chime in with deep, guttural chants. Owls sometimes accompany with the subtlest hoots. And every now and then, I hear the haunting cry of a coyote howling. Losing a child to death has allowed me to understand the groans of the whole creation. I can nod my head in agreement when I hear the shrieks and the squalls. I am compelled to yell with them, The pain is too much! Help us, God! Come quickly! I think we behave like creation groaning when we cry out to God or lift up our voices in song. We can shout or sing our pain, and it seems to translate into something more reasonable. Our emotion in the waves of sound can drift up high to our creator. It is said in Revelation 5, verses 11 through 12, that angels encircle God's throne and they continuously cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation five thirteen. There will come a day when we, along with all the creation, will no longer groan about the sadness and suffering. Our wailing and moaning will give away to singing and shouting, the likes of which no ears have ever heard. It says every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea will shout praises in one accord. The bellowing, crowing, chirping, screeching, howling, bleeding, squalling, singing, drumming, humming that will occur, no one can fathom. With one voice and one chorus, all tongues and tribes will join to celebrate the victory of no more sin and no more death. Lock eyes on our Savior, fellow believers. Do not be defeated by the carnage of this world. The King of kings and Lord of lords is called faithful and true. His eyes are like flames of fire and his head are many crowns. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. While I wait for him, I will join an impatient creation and groan at sorrow, but I will also sing and rejoice in the hope. She lost her 19 year old, and God is up in heaven saying, Have you considered her? And when the trial came, in her tears, she worshiped God. That is the faith I want to have. And I know that is the faith you want to have as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are human and we do not always understand what you are doing. These two chapters in your word